0: I have taken fifth-grade math five times. Once with uh, Dan Sanfilippo over at Master Elementary School, and then four other times with Haley, Luke, Maddie, and Grace. And I was okay up into about the fifth grade, but once we moved to the dreaded mathematical word problem, I was pretty much sunk. It's done. You know, those math problems that you've got to, you know, you can't use a calculator for. You actually have to think. I thought I'd give you one just to try it on for size. At a party, everyone shook hands with everybody else. There were 66 handshakes. How many people were at the party? I fail. Well, of course, the answer is 12 in general, with n plus 1 people, the number of handshakes is the sum of the first n consecutive numbers 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus n. Since this sum is n times n plus 1 divided by 2, we need to solve the equation n times n plus 1 divided by 2 equals 66. This is the quadratic equation n squared plus n minus 132 equals 0. Got it? Done. 12 people. I have a theological word problem for you. How does God forgive? How does God forgive people? Ever wonder about that? How does God just let a sin go? The lie is, let bygones be bygones. I mean, from the human perspective, for God to punish sin as a just, holy, righteous God, that would be pretty simple. No dilemma, He just punishes. But to forgive to make it more complex, humanly speaking, when sin against people sin against us, will you please forgive me, they ask, and we just say, yes, I forgive you. Deal is done. But with God, there's a difference, a very important difference, a key difference. As Lloyd-Jones would say, God is no indulgent father who just says, all right, my child, come back, all is well. My mother worked at Mutual of Omaha. And Dad worked at Northwestern Bell Telephone Company. And uh, when I was just the only child, I would get sent to Grandma's house. Grandma and Grandpa's on 65th Street. Our Grandma up the hill on 64th Street. And so Grandma up the hill, Nona, she raised me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And when I would disobey, uh, she would say, See that uh, yardstick over there that you get at the hardware store? You know, those? it says Ace Hardware or something. That yardstick uh, is going to be used for your backside if you don't obey. But she just kept saying it over and over and over, and she never used it. So one day, I walked over to the yardstick, I broke it over my knee, and handed it to Grandma. And she still then spank me. I mean, God's holy, and does He just say when it comes to for- for- forgiveness, like creation, let there be light, let there be forgiveness, and it just happens? But God's holy, and God's just, and He's... Righteous and He has unchangeable standards. And Sin has to be dealt with through the person and work of Jesus Christ and only through Him so that His justice, God's justice is upheld. His holiness is recognized and God doesn't just condone sin. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Romans chapter 3. As we answer the theological word problem, how does God forgive sin... And the answer is finally found by the five-year-old Sunday school student where they are asked, what would you learn about today in Sunday school? And they say, Jesus? And that is the answer to the question today. How does God forgive sin by upho- and continue to uphold His standards and still show His gracious kindness and love? Jesus Christ, not the doctrine, but the just and justifier, is the one who solves this in our mind theological problem. We're going to look at Romans chapter 3 today uh, in the second session and basically we have the lie in the um, eyes of many people. I don't think with you because you are a well-taught congregation. The God of the Old Testament is a different God than the New Testament. That's one way to put it. God of the Old Testament is a God of what? Wrath, judgment. God of the New Testament is a God of love. And I'm going to try to convince you today, that if you don't say wrath when you mention God's love, or love when you mention God's wrath, you don't understand either one of them because they define each other. I'm going to want you to think love and wrath go together, and love describes wrath, and wrath describes love. How could that be? In what manner? How does that happen? I think Romans chapter 3, and the word propitiation gives us the answer. People don't like the wrath of God. Uh, They make apologies for it. They try to banish it from our thoughts and theological journals. And my working premise for part two today is, to quote Martin Luther, if I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. I would stand on my head for joy. By the way, it was just a couple years ago. I think I was at the Abendroth's house and I stood on my head playing around with Josiah and Owen or something and my neck was hurt for like weeks for that. Don't... But figuratively speaking, to talk about Luther. And when you get propitiation and you understand it, You understand holiness. You understand love. You understand the plan of God and how He forgives sin. You understand the love of the Father and the love of the Son. When you get propitiation, you understand everything. But Some hate it. C.H. Dodd, 14 years, Divinity School of Cambridge, tried to excise the wrath of God as an out-of-date, antiquated, archaic phrase. couple pastors in Belfast, said, remember when we were taught that awful catechism when we were younger? What are you by nature, asked the catechizer. The catechumen is to answer this way, I am an enemy of God, a child of Satan and an heir of hell. Those kind of thoughts are are passe. They're monstrous, as some would say. But what does Paul teach? Does Paul teach like Rob Bell, or how does he teach? Let's find out. Romans chapter 3. As you know, big picture, Paul is trying to say, uh, we have no righteousness, whether we are pagans, or we are Jewish people, we are moralizers. We have no righteousness, so we need someone else's righteousness. And he's kind of landing the plane of unrighteousness that everyone has towards the end of Romans 3. Let's pick it up in 18. You're very familiar with the quotes found in verses 10 through 18. But I'll just pick it up very end of verse 18. Probably in your Bibles you'll see all capital letters or an indent showing quotes from the Old Testament. And that final one there listed in verse 18, there's no fear of God before their eyes. Paul is trying to say no one keeps all of God's law. And here these sinful men, they can't be justified on the ground of their own works. Verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Mouth shut, no spinning of words, no excuses, no defense, no exoneration. Uh, God, if you uh, are true and what Romans 1, 2 and 3a says is true about me, I have no defense, I have no hope of salvation, I stand guilty not going to talk back anymore, guilty as charged, the silence of confession, to use Haldane's words. Until people say, yes, the law has stopped my mouth and I am guilty, uh, there's no need from their perspective to talk about Jesus Christ. This is the language of Job. I am insignificant. I lay my hand on my mouth. Verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, there's lots we could say here, but for our overview this morning, notice the word in the middle of that verse, those words, in his sight. Before other people, maybe we're not as bad, but in God's sight, uh, we have no righteousness, we are not holy, and we need righteousness. We're sinful. We agree. We confess. We acknowledge. It's against God. Is there any help? And now we move to verses 21 through 31. God loves to save sinners. Only God could save sinners. He's happy to do it. He's pleased to do it. It shows forth His character in the gospel method. You're either saved the law method, keeping all the law, or the gospel method. Jesus Christ keeps the law for you, dies for your lawlessness, and is raised from the dead. Jesus does what no sinful man or woman could do. And now we have the light of the gospel with all the dark, painted... Is anybody here a painter, by the way? Not a very good painter. Some painters. When you want to create this foreboding scene and a stormy scene, the dark colors. That's kind of what's been going on in chapter 3. Everybody's guilty. All the world's guilty. And now we have light, God to the rescue, a new stage, a new chapter, as it were. But now, it has nothing to do with, with time... This is logic. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. The light of the gospel. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. God's wrath can be satisfied. God's justice can be meted out. God's love can be displayed. For those people who have never kept perfectly the law of God and have ever sinned one time. To think, if God, you mark iniquities, who can stand? Right? Psalm 130 And God does mark iniquity. so who could stand? Luther said this is the chief point of this epistle and of the whole Bible. The center and heart of Romans, Cranfield said. Morris, Leanne Morris, the most important single paragraph ever written. Makes me want to pay attention to what it is. Pat, when was the last time you preached through Romans? Long time. Okay, so see, this is good to talk about. How is God's righteousness demonstrated? Well, I can tell you that it's not achieved by the works of the law. It says it right there in verse 21. It's been manifested apart from the works of the law, at least from our perspective, and now we have an antidote wrath, but now, sin, but now, doom, but now. We've got a flicker of hope, a ray of sun. And it's through faith. Verse 22 The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there's no distinction. Why is there no distinction? Verse 23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Different tenses there, by the way. We don't have a lot of time to give you all the details behind it. But all have sinned, that's a certain tense, and continue to fall short of the glory of God. They keep on falling short. So how does God save? By legal declaration. Verse 24, We've moved into the language of the courtroom on my desk, I have several things at home. my study desk. Uh, I have several Bibles. I have a skull. Chris Peterson, do you have a skull? I want you to know, from me to you, just between us girls. Someone saw the skull on my desk in a vi- no-compromise video, and they wrote me and said, only Satanists have skulls on their desk, and Mike Abendroth, you are a Satanist. And I tried to say, well, the Puritans, you know, had a skull on their desk because it reminded them they are going to die. The people they preached to are going to die. But I, I'm, I'm a Satanist now. I just want you to know. And, uh, and so are you. <laughs> and I have a gavel, a judge's gavel on my desk because I want to think Courtroom. I want to think forensic. I want to think legal. I want to think judicial because this language is that very thing. The word justification here is that opposite word of condemnation. It's courtroom language. You are not guilty. How can we be not guilty? How can we be declared not guilty when we know we are guilty? Full vindication. Right there in verse 24. And are justified by His grace as a gift. Status before God, deemed as righteous because of the righteousness found in another Jesus Christ. There's a reason why Jesus didn't come down on Friday, die, be raised from the dead on Sunday, because he needed to perfectly obey for us in our place. He perfectly obeyed the law. This is the language of a courtroom. It's not a process Think gavel, not guilty. But now it's got its ground in redemption. We move from the courthouse into the slave market. Notice the end of verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now, when I say redemption, I don't know what you think of. If you were a Jew, you'd think of ransomed or redeemed out of Egypt. But I'm kind of thinking about Nebraska a lot. I haven't been home for years and I just think about my background. What were those little stamps that you would collect and then you would redeem them for certain prizes? They were called what and what stamps? S&H Green Stamps. Anybody still have those? Should have turned them in. Like I saved about 9,000 Bazooka Joe comics to try to get that sweatshirt and never turned it in. Should have. Slaves to sin... Emancipated out, bought with the price, that price is the death of Christ Jesus. All kind of just in review, setting the stage. By the way, Pat, and when he preaches, and Chris and Mike and all the other elders, they preach to you for lots of reasons with certain goals. And here's one of the goals. It's not the highest goal, but it is a goal. We want you to study the Bible the way we preach it. Oh, he goes verse by verse. He looks at context. He looks at what was chapter 1 before that. He sees the broad swath of redemptive history. That's how I should study the Bible. That's how I should teach my, my wife. That's how I should teach my kids. That's how I should teach Sunday school. We are modeling for you biblical exposition that you do at home. We get paid to be good. You're good for nothing. So there's a way this works out. Stole that from MacArthur. And and this judicial language moves into the courthouse, and you just see the different facets of of our salvation found in Christ Jesus. And you just think, this is the way God does things, and the riches and and the glorious wisdom that He has. And we move to this public demonstration, and here's where we're going to focus today in this particular verse. Chapter 3, verse 25. We go from judicial language to, uh, to slavery language to now ritual language. The public demonstration of God's wrath assuaged, known as propitiation. Chapter 3, verse 25, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness. We'll stop there for now. Let me first say this. This was a public demonstration. No behind the scenes. No secret handshakes. No just a few people. No inner circle stuff. Placed before the eyes of all, Bengal would translate it. And what was it? Put forward as a propitiation by His blood. You could translate propitiation if you wanted one word. Maybe you could say appeasement. You could say placation, you could say satisfaction. Now stop here for a second. If God has to be appeased or satisfied, that means to say that He has had wrath. Propitiation presupposes God's wrath. I mean, just think about it for a second. Every sin that's ever been committed must be paid for, either by the person in hell forever or upon the person of Christ Jesus at Calvary. Every single sin. Now, back in the old days, propitiation was used in a pagan concept. Gods are mad. How can we make the God happy? Give them some St. John's wort or some Zoloft? Uh, No, let's give them fruit. Whenever I think of giving a, a God fruit who might be angry, I just think of this. Anybody know what I'm talking about? I almost fell off the stage. Sorry, the Platform. Everyone think of that? What's that? What's that? Come on! Assuaging cat deities at the Chinese restaurant. Got to give them a little fruit up there. Huh? You knew it? What are you talking about? Oh, let's give them a virgin. Right? This, this angry God. And we need to appease that God because if we don't give the God some grain, then maybe our crops won't grow. And that was kind of the pagan idea. And here's the main thing that you cannot miss. The gods are mad. We bring the offerings. We bring the rice. We bring the girl. We bring something. But if we are sinful and if we can't save ourselves, if autosotericism is wrong and nothing we bring is right and our motives wouldn't be right, we need someone else to assuage God's wrath for us who has right motives, who is holy and will do it the right way. And so when you read propitiation, it's always God is propitiating. God is the one who's the actor here. It's the work of God himself. God propitiates His wrath by His own action by setting forth His Son. We can't do it. We can't placate God's wrath. Now, let's think about it this way. The word propitiation, I think is best thought of when you think back to the mercy seat. Remember the mercy seat back in the Old Testament? What was in the Ark of the Covenant? Do we remember? Don't think Indiana Jones. Think Bible Bible. Please. And how was it designed? What were the different things called? Inside, you would find different things at different times, but you typically find errands. What, Rod? You'd find some something that you eat, manna. I, I have to tell this funny story. I can't. I can't not. You know, in New England, we like to add Rs and stuff to the end of As. I'm the Alpha and Omega, that kind of stuff. (laughs) So there's a restaurant in town called the M-A-N-O-R. That's not how we say it in New England. But their food's so bad, when they give us food, I want to say, what is this? (laughs) Now those of you that laugh know that the Hebrew word manna, translated is, what is this? Because when you go to the manna and they give you some food, it's the manna. What is this? I think it's hilariously funny. (laughs) The manna. Cocked. What's the symbolism? Well, also in that box is the ten what? Commandments. And on the top of the box, what do we call that? The mercy seat. What do you put on top of the mercy seat? Yom Kippur. The blood of the sacrifice. So here's the picture. is when God is looking down, as it were, and He sees all those broken laws that you all broke, that the Israelites broke, that we all have broken. He doesn't end up seeing those broken laws because His wrath has been assuaged, because when He looks down, He sees not the broken laws, He sees the blood of the innocent sacrifice. More articulately, articulately, Boyce said, now, as God looks down from between the outstretched wings of the cherubim, he does not see the law of Moses that we have broken, but instead sees the blood of the innocent victim. Punishment has been meted out. Propitiation has been made. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. Turn to 1 John chapter 4, please, verse 10. Here's the tie-in from earlier and then we're going to look at some attacks on propitiation and substitutionary atonement. First John 4:10. How do you describe the love of God? If someone were to say to you, could you please describe the love of God? Or could you write a poem about it? Could you please explain it theologically? Would you ever include propitiation all right, let's put it in a preaching style. How could you not include propitiation? We, we, we have the beloved John. Wasn't he known as the, the apostle of love? Doesn't anybody dis- know the, the love of God better than, than John? And so when you read about love, here's what I want you to think. If I ride Pat's bicycle, that's a nice bike, by the way, deluxe. If I ride Pat's bicycle to your house at night and, and I yell and I say love, I want the antiphonal response to be propitiation. And when I ride over to your house the next night and say propitiation, your antiphonal knee-jerk reaction to the word propitiation is love. Okay? You say, I, don't, I, don't, I have no idea where you're going. That's the art of the sermon. Because now we know. 1 John All right, well, I'm ready. I'm ready, John. Tell me what love is. Describe love. We've got all this kind of maudlin, sentimental love definitions in the world. And I love cheese, and I love the Huskers, and I love all these different things. How did those go together? I love cheese. I love the Huskers. But what kind of love is God's love? And it tells me, when you say love, I want you to say propitiation. When you say propitiation, I want you to say love. Why? Why? And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. John describes love by saying, yes, Jesus made propitiation for our sins. Can you imagine? The wrath of God is rightly poured out on us. But God loved us so much that He had Jesus, the righteous one, intercept that wrath because He loves us. You don't understand love unless you understand propitiation, and you don't understand propitiation unless you understand love, per John. James Denny said, If the propitiatory death of Jesus is eliminated from the love of God, it might be unfair to say that the love of God is robbed of all meaning, but it is certainly robbed of its apostolic meaning. And then it turns to, if God would love me so much, then I want to respond with obedience and I want to respond with with faith, I want to respond with loving other people. If that's how much God loves me, that He poured out wrath on His Son instead of me, on my behalf, in my place, if that's what love is, how could I rebel against such love? But there is some rebellion against love and let me give you several reasons why people attack propitiation and what they don't know is they're really attacking the love of God. Number one. In our culture, justice is outdated. In our modern culture, retributive justice is outdated. Why is propitiation and love attacked? Because we don't even have jails and prisons anymore. We like to call them, what do we call them instead? Very often correctional facilities. Rehab is in, justice is out. Criminals don't need punishment, they need correction, so they say. I mean really, an infinite amount of punishment for finite sins and you can just hear how people argue. Can you say this? Jesus Christ suffered the death penalty for me in a culture where death penalty is like kicked out. But in fact, that's exactly what Jesus did. Some call it cosmic child abuse. His name is Stephen Chalky, Brian McLaren, if God wants to forgive us, why doesn't He just do it? Does punishing an innocent person make things better? That sounds more like injustice in the cosmic equation. It's being attacked. I'll tell you another reason why it's being attacked is propitiation to some is uncouth in our hip, cool, hipster generation. Chalky said, you know what? This is just bad manners. The violent pre-Christian thinking behind the popular theory of substitutionary atonement is pastorally deficient and even dangerous. To talk about the wrath of God, it's dangerous. It's uncivilized. It's unpolished. It's raunchy. Uh, Years ago, uh, Harry Emerson Fosdick, he was a liberal preacher, and he wrote a book called A Guide to the Understanding of the Bible. And he said basically God got better and evolved. So you know that God on Sinai? Mad, wrathful, angry. You know, Noah's God floods everybody, kills everybody but eight people. Abraham's God wants sacrifices and stuff. Kill your son. You know, time went on, God got a little better, David's God was kind of half good, half bad till the imprecatory Psalms, you know, that part. And by the time of the prophets, Fosdick said, God was really making improvement. He now hated unrighteousness and spoke out against crimes committed by men. And when Jesus came along, well, Jesus gave men a beautiful concept of the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. And Fosdick forgot to say, and Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else, but... God's evolving. He used to be bloodthirsty. Now He's not. They can't stand it when we sing songs like nothing but the blood of Jesus. Are you washed in the blood of Jesus? Thirdly, why is propitiation attacked? Retributive justice is out, number one. It's uncouth, number two. Number three, I had to make up a word. Figured I could. Ostenization. Osteanization. You've got Norman Vincent Peale in the 50s, followed by Robert Schuller, followed by Rick Warren, followed by Osteen. And uh, let's forget the judge motif, the courtroom motif, the slavery motif. I mean, who wants to do that? And now it's a sappy sentimentalism. Just like the revivalist said in the 19th century, "God never did throw a javelin into the heart of His Son." We already know about God and and His requirements. We know about sin. Let's talk about how you can live your life now. Number four, why is substitutionary atonement attack? Here's another one-word answer. Lewis. Lewis. I do not mean Samuel Lewis Johnson, Jr. He wouldn't do that. But I do mean C.S. Lewis. Let me do it kind of no-co. Anybody here listen to No Compromise Radio? Some do. Okay, I'll pay you money afterwards. I'm so heartbroken. I thought you all did. If you get your theology from C.S. Lewis, stop. But he's such a good writer. We like the books. Great kids things. We, 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 We read the stories of the kids. He is a great writer. But his theology is awful. If I said to you, do you get your theology from someone who believed in errancy, purgatory, denied substitutionary atonement, would you still think that was a good idea? I don't think you would. And so what we do is we get our theology from movies. Lion, Witch in the Wardrobe would deny propitiatory sacrifice as it lifts up what's called Christus Victor or maybe ransom to Satan view. C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, page 54. If you read it when you first got saved, I dare you to read it now because I think you might change your view on it. Now I admit, Lewis said, that this theory of penalty substitution does not seem to me quite so immoral and so silly as it used to. The central Christian belief is that Christ's death has someone put, someone has put us right with God and given us a fresh start. Martin Lloyd-Jones says in 1963, C.S. Lewis had a defective view of salvation and was an opponent of substitutionary penalty atonement. Read In My Place by Packer Endeavor. Instead, you'll be more helped. Okay, number five. Let me give you another word, reason why propitiation is attacked. The love of God, therefore, is attacked. The wrath of God is therefore attacked. Another word for the attack and why? Feminization. The feminization of our culture. Some feminists got together a while ago and they had a conference about God and it was called Reimagining God. It's a bad conference. One speaker said, we don't need guys hanging on crosses with blood dripping and all that weird stuff. And so if you're a feminist, instead of this violent suffering on behalf of another, we need to have nurturing. We need to have a family environment. Margaret Miles wrote an article called God's Love Mother's Milk. (sighs) Sorry, milk. (sighs) I grew up in Nebraska and I say milk. M-E-L-K. I gotta wash that milk out of my mouth with milk. My kids always said, Dad, it's milk. How do you say milk? Milk. It's not milk, it's milk. Milk (laughs) Kizadek. See, it works. Although theologians, she said, may have claimed crucifixion scenes exhibited the extremity of God's love for humans, it was the scenes of a child sucking at the breast that spoke to people on the basis of their earliest experience. Violence is out. Salvific salvific things through violence has really got to be out. That's all male perspective. Even the resurrection. Rosemary Radford Ruther said on the podium at this seminary, that the resurrection of Jesus, quote, was a myth created by males to assuage their own fear of death. And if you don't think feminization has hit evangelicalism, it has. All right, we've got time for, time for one more. Right. Finally, number six, right. Why has substitutionary atonement been attacked regarding propitiation? The answer is right. Right. W-R-H-I, wait, how do I spell it? W-R-I-G-H-T, N-T Wright. I don't know what it is, maybe it's youth, but there's a fascination with this man for all kinds of reasons. And he would have you deny basically what I'm trying to teach you in the second session. N.T. right quote. This is what happens when people present over simple stories with an angry God and a loving Jesus with a God who demands blood and doesn't much mind whose it is as long as it's innocent. You'd have thought people would notice that this flies in the face of John's and Paul's deep rooted theology of the love of the triune God. Not God was so angry with the world that He gave us His Son. But God so loved the world He gave us His Son. That's why when I sing that interesting recent song, In Christ Alone My Hope Is Found, when we come to the line and on the cross as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. I believe it's more deeply true to sing the love of God was satisfied. I commend that alteration to the song which is in other respects basically solid. in the circles I live in, maybe it's not trickled down to the church levels yet, but people are infatuated with N.T. right to their hurt. To their hurt. I would never promote N.T. right, ever, ever, ever. And those that do, I wonder about them. N.T. right said of propitiation and the substitution atonement, God wants to punish me and for some reason He punishes somebody else. So, phew, I'm all right, okay? For a five-year-old, N.T. Wright says, that's fine. Maybe that'll do. But actually, let's grow up. We're not talking about five-year-olds here. We're talking about grown men and women who ought to know better to be honest. End quote. And I'm going to promote him as a pastor over my dead body. Sure got quiet in here, didn't it? The summary is this. Can you imagine... The theological word problem. I, Mike Abendroth, sinned and sinned often and sinned regularly against a thrice holy God. And God doesn't just go, okay, no big deal, and the stick is broken over the knee. But to uphold God's wrath and to demonstrate God's love Jesus died on the cross. Can you imagine God exercising all his attributes simultaneously at the cross? The wrath of God was poured out. His love was shown towards us. God's justice was upheld. His righteousness was upheld. And he makes atonement for all those who would ever believe by a propitiatory sacrifice. When you say love, I want you to say propitiation. And when you say propitiation, I want you to define it with God loved me.